God's Word and open with us to John chapter 14. John 14, uh, verses 1 through 6, in the 14th chapter of the Gospel of John. T-R-O-U-B-L-E. It comes in all shapes and sizes. Trouble. We've seen trouble of late in many different shapes and sizes, from hurricanes, East Coast, Gulf Coast, getting ready to hit today is Hurricane Ida, earthquakes, we've seen it in flooding in Middle Tennessee, we've seen it in ICUs and ventilators and positive tests and American troops killed in Afghanistan and demonic addiction and frightening illnesses. No wonder some of us are worried, scared, disappointed, frustrated. Some of us are outright angry or maybe confused, bitter, maybe depressed. Most of us are probably say we're, we're tired. That old Shirelle song comes to mind, doesn't it? Mama said there'll be days like this. There'll be days like this, Mama said. Before Mama said that, Jesus said, there'll be days like this. Days of uncertainty, days of calamity. Jesus said in John 16, in the world you will have tribulation. You, 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 and tribulation can be transliterated as trouble involving direct suffering. So Jesus said, hey, in this world you're going to have trouble involving direct suffering and I know that not everybody in this room at this moment is in a time of crisis not everybody in every room that's gathered to worship Jesus today is in a time of crisis but there is a time of crisis in every room where the church gathers today and that was no different in the upper room we come to John 14 we're in the upper room Jesus is with his disciples. In John 12, we understand Jesus says, My soul is troubled. Why? Because he knows that in a few hours he's going to the cross. He's going to take the cup of the wrath of God and consume it for you and for me. He's going to die in your place and my place on the cross. He's going to be buried and three days later be raised to life. Meanwhile, he tells his disciples, he washes their feet, John 13, and then begins to tell them, one of you is going to deny me and betray me, and pretty much all of you by the end of it, in essence, will betray me. And by the way, I'm going to a place that you can't go right now. I'm going to come back and get you and take you with me, because you'll, you'll be where I am, but, but where I'm going right now, you cannot go. I think about these disciples hearing that. They've left everything to follow him. They've left their occupation. They've left their home. They've left their family to follow Jesus. And now he tells them, hey guys, physically you can't follow me anymore. I'm going away and where I'm going you can't come. He'll tell them later, sure, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and 
I'll be with you and through the Holy Spirit, but at this point in time where I'm going, you cannot go. So you can imagine when we get to John 14, verse 1, the disciples are probably troubled. They're probably in their own time of crisis, a crisis of belief, thinking, man, I don't know if we can make it in this. How are we going to make it? What are we going to do? And Jesus has some words for them. It doesn't matter if you're a disciple in the first century or the 21st century. You're going to face times of crisis, and in those times of crisis, Jesus has a word for us. And so this morning, I want to speak to you on the subject in times of crisis. John 14, verse 1 through 6. If you're there, say, I'm there. Look at verse 1. I'll begin to read and read through verse 6, and then we'll unpack it together. So here we go, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Lord, we've heard your word. Uh, Let us receive it and respond to it in a way that pleases you and you alone. Give us courage. Give us confidence to respond today. In Jesus' name we pray. And God's people said, so I, I want to give you this takeaway. I call it the takeaway. Big idea, main idea, the mess. Sermon in a sentence reads this way. Every crisis of belief, every crisis of belief. You may, you may be here today or worshiping with us online. You may say, hey, I don't know if my marriage is going to make it. I don't know if we're going to make it. You may be in a crisis of belief. Says, you know, I don't know if I can believe the Bible. This is kind of new to me, and I don't know if I can believe in this Jesus. Or maybe you're in a crisis of belief where you say, you know what, this semester I've taken on too much in school, and I just don't know if I can make it. Or man, I, I, don't, know, I, I don't know if we're going to make it through this pandemic this year, and I, I just don't know if we're going to make it. Whatever crisis of belief, I don't know if my job's going to last. I may get let go. I don't know how I'm going to pay my bills. All these crises of belief that you're facing right now, Here's some good news. Every crisis of belief calls for belief in Christ. And I want to show you how we can know that's true. And I want to do that with four reasons right out of this text. Here's the first reason we can know that every crisis of belief calls for belief in Christ. Number one, Jesus is aware of your crisis. (laughs) He's... He's aware of your crisis. I know when we get into a crisis and we think, God, where are you? Do you know this is happening in my life? God, are you aware of it? Are you paying attention, Lord? But you need to hear today that Jesus is aware of your crisis. When Tanya was battling cancer in 2017 and 18, Miss Brenda, who cleans... Uh, here for us at the Red Bank campus and cleans my office as a part of 
her duties, and she left me a, a note on my desk, on a little sticky note, two words, Jesus knows, Jesus knows. You need to know today that Jesus knows about your crisis. He's aware of it. He is fully aware of the crisis you face today. Now, I've got to be honest with you. Until last Thursday, I was unaware of the milk crate challenge that's on social media. Now, has anybody seen this? Apparently, you stack milk crates on top of one another. You start with seven stacked up, and then you go to six and five and four and three, two and one, and you make kind of like a stepladder of milk crates, and you're to climb the milk crates. I don't know why we're climbing milk crates, but I was most interested in not the why we're doing this when I first saw it, but my first interest and my first question was where? Have I missed something in my life? Do you have 28 milk crates in your garage? Where do you get 28 milk crates? Is there a milk crate store? Should I have 28 milk crates? Because I don't. Some of the trouble that we face is homegrown. We manufacture it on our own. Climbing milk crates, for example. We, we, that's homegrown trouble. So some trouble we face, we've created on our own. But either way, irregardless if it's homegrown or not, Jesus is aware of it. Whatever trouble it is that you're facing today, Jesus is aware of it. He says it like this to his disciples who are extremely troubled at this point in time in their walk with Christ. And, he, and, and it's obvious because of what he says in verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. The word hearts means your inner self. Your emotions, your desire, your will, your soul, your spirit, your conscience. I mean, the, the innermost part of your being, Jesus says, don't let it be shaken. Don't let it be stirred. Don't let it be agitated. Don't let it be thrown into confusion. Let not your hearts be troubled. Jesus is not saying to them, he's not saying to them, you will not face trouble. He's not saying to them, you'll never have to adjust to affliction. He's not saying to them, you'll never have to bear burdens. He's not saying to them, you'll never have to carry any cares. Or you'll never have to deal with depression. Or you'll never have to face your fears. He's not saying that. He's not saying you'll never have hardship. He's not saying you'll never be tackled by temptation. He's not saying that. He's not saying... Don't ever start being troubled. He knows they're already troubled. He knows that. There's no starting to be troubled. They are troubled. Jesus is telling them, stop it. Stop being troubled. Do not let your hearts continue to be troubled. Don't let this become a pattern in your life where every piece of bad news throws you into an agitated, stirred up, shaken state. Don't let it happen. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Well, how in the world can I not? Paul tells us how. Listen to this. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving to God. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts <laughs> don't let your hearts be troubled how, how can my heart not be troubled this is how the peace of God 
Well, how do I get the peace of God? You let your request be made known to God. You lean on Him. You rely on Him. You believe in Him. You trust in Him. Jesus said it like this in Matthew 6, Do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Amen? (laughs) Yeah, don't (laughs) borrow trouble from tomorrow is what He's saying. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Hurricane Ida is barreling through the Gulf right now. It's a Cat 4. May It might get to 5 before it hits landfall this afternoon. And on the anniversary of Hurricane Katrina, 16 years ago, Tanya and I were standing on the steps of Hebron Baptist Church, getting ready to have a worship service and watching all these cars just evacuate. Katrina we had a worship service and then our folks some of them evacuated some of them stayed and I can remember how devastating the storm was to the to the communities outside of New Orleans now New Orleans was flooded the levees failed and it flooded the city and of course but the communities Bush and Bogalusa and Covington and Slidell outside of the the city were destroyed by tornadoes. I mean, Slidell had some flooding, sure, but some of those areas like where we were in Bush, we didn't have flooding, but we had trees down. Every, I mean, tornadoes just ripped that place apart. Bogalusa looked like a war zone, Bogalusa, Louisiana, and it got little attention. It got little help because it was so outside. It's about 15 miles from the Mississippi state line, almost out in nowhere and forgotten about was Bogalusa. And at the time, a journalist by the name of Richard Meek wrote an article entitled, Can Bogalusa Save the World? And in this article, Richard Meek makes the claim that in the dark days after Hurricane Katrina, the late governor, she died a few years ago, Kathleen Blanco, the late governor, when asked about the significant damage the storm unleashed in Bogalusa, Louisiana, and if help would be provided for Bogalusa, allegedly the governor made the now famous comment that the city of Bogalusa was located in Mississippi, not Louisiana. Now, she, of course, denied making that comment. Of course, but there's still question, did she make it or did she not? She very well could have not made that statement. But there's questions surrounding it. But here's what we never have to question. (laughs) You you never have to question if Jesus is unaware of your trouble. If he's unaware of your crisis. Because the fact is, he's fully aware of your crisis. And he's fully aware of your trouble. This is why every crisis of belief calls for us to believe in Christ. Here's a second reason why this is so critically important for you and I to lean on, trust in, and believe in Christ. Number two, Jesus cares about your crisis. Not only is he aware of it, he cares about it. He cares about your crisis. As small as you think it is, as big as you think it is, and others may think it not so big, Jesus cares about it. Irregardless, he cares about your crisis, your suffering, your trouble, and your struggle. He cares about it. It's unbelievable, is it not, what humans being, human beings believe. What we will believe today is unbelievable. Harvard University, founded in 1692. By the way, Harvard, 
the university was named after a pastor named John Harvard. For the first 70 years of the school's existence, it did not have a president who was not also a pastor. The motto founded, Harvard was founded on this motto, Veritas Christo et Ecclesia, Latin for truth for Christ and the church. The school was founded on truth, founded on the gospel. Here we are nearly four centuries later in 2021, and the Harvard University has, has named Greg Epstein their head chaplain. Mr. Epstein is an atheist. An atheist is the head chaplain of Harvard University. Now, for a school known for its smarts, that's pretty stupid, folks. That's just stupid. He's a humanist chaplain. And here's, here's what he has said. He has said it like this. We don't look to a God for answers. We are each other's answers. Now, listen... If, if you look to me to be your answer, you've already failed the test. If I look to you to be my answer, I've already failed the test. You say, well, you're the pastor. You're supposed to have all the answers. No, no, no. I can point you to the answer, but I don't have any answers. But I can point you to Jesus because he is the answer. And you can point people to Jesus because he's the answer, right? See, this, 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 this chaplain at Harvard University is saying, don't believe in God Believe in yourself. But Jesus says it quite differently. In John 14 verse 1, Jesus says, You believe in God, believe also in me. Not yourself. Not in Buddha or Muhammad. Not in religion or Joseph Smith or good works. Not in philosophy or science. Believe in me. That, that's fairly exclusive, would you agree? <laughs> Believe in me. It's an audacious claim, by the way. Jesus is claiming here to be God. Now, if he's not Lord, he's crazy. Because that is an audacious claim to make. You know, the Bible says, have faith in who? Have faith in God. And Jesus is telling these disciples, I am God. You trust in him, you trust in me. You rely on God, you can rely on me. You lean on God, you can lean on me. You depend on God, you can depend on me. You believe in God, you believe in me. Me. Jesus alone. Nobody else, no other organization, but Jesus. Jesus did not come as just a good teacher. Jesus was God come to teach and God come to preach. He's God, period. Believe in God, trust in Him, rely on Him. You can trust, believe, rely on me. And I know that's easier said than done. I know that. We get in a time of crisis and, and we're like, man, does, is Jesus aware of this? Does He care about this? We know He cares about We know He cares about this. Jesus is giving them a new peace right here. You have trusted in Yahweh. Now I am Yahweh in the flesh. I am God manifest before you in the flesh. So trust in me. But we get in those times and we're looking for an antidote to our fear and a vaccine for our anxiety. And where is the vaccine for our fear and our worry and our anxiety? 
It's not found in emotions or experiences or other people. It's found in Christ and Christ alone. Jesus and Him alone. Yet here's what we do. And I've got a question for you. Why do we do this? Why do we care most about the things of this world such as political parties and our government, for example? By the way, Jesus doesn't say, believe in God, believe also in government. He doesn't say that. Yet, we care more about our political parties and more about government, who, by the way, they could care less about us. They couldn't care less about us. All the while, Jesus, who cares for us first, most, and foremost, we couldn't care less about him. Why is that? How is that possible? This is breaking news, I know, to a lot of you, but let me just lay it out here. The government, our government, our our political party, your political party, my political party, our political parties, listen, they don't care about us. Not a lick. They care about your vote, but they don't care about you. In fact, if you're a follower of Jesus, that's a big if, but if you have surrendered your life to Christ and you're following him, Jesus says they hate you. Why do they hate you? Because they hate him. And Jesus said, this world, don't be surprised, they're going to hate you because they hate me. They're going to persecute you because they persecuted me. Why do we care more about those who hate us, who couldn't care less about us, And we care about the one who loves us first, foremost, and most. And cares about us most. And look, it's on both sides. I don't care what political party you're in. It's on both sides. I know when when, when Trump was in office, there was some pushback on Christian nationalism. And we saw that in some cases, certainly. But then we learned this week that Christian nationalism has a left flank as well. I can remember Trump holding up the Bible. Got a lot of pushback on that, but this week President Biden opened the Bible and just ripped Isaiah 6 completely out of context. The only bipartisanship in our government, the only bipartisanship I've seen over the last couple of years in our government is a gross mishandling of the Word of God. Period. They are of a different kingdom. They're not advancing the kingdom of God. And if you're a member of the kingdom of God, you belong to a different kingdom. A kingdom where our king says, you believe in God, believe in me. Not you believe in God, believe in America. Or you believe in God, believe in government. Or you believe in God, believe in Buddha or Muhammad or religion or good works. Believe in me. And here's the beauty of this. Though we could not care less about Jesus with the way we live our lives. I'm not talking about with our lips. We'd say, sure, I care about Jesus most of all. But with our lives... What is that communicating? Do we really care more about Christ? And even though we don't, Christ cares about us. That's the beauty of the gospel. He wants us. He doesn't need us. He wants us. We need him even when we don't want him. That's the gospel. Jesus is aware of your crisis. He cares about your crisis now does this mean that we hate government and we no it means we pray for them we share the love of Christ with them we praise God for men and women who are following Jesus who are in our government state local and federal who are who are in the military we praise God for them because they're taking the gospel into those places praise God for them in our schools and 
on our services locally, nationally, and around the world. Jesus knows. He is aware. He cares. Number three, Jesus is preparing despite your crisis. He's preparing a place for you and for me. He's not, he hadn't stopped preparing because of the pandemic. He hadn't stopped preparing because there's wars and rumors of wars. He hadn't stopped preparing because there's a hurricane in the Gulf. He hadn't stopped preparing because there's an earthquake here, a heat wave from coast to coast. He hadn't stopped preparing. You know, John 14, 2 and 3 really helped me this week. It says, in my father's house are many rooms. If we're not so, what I've told you, I'll go there and prepare a place. And if I go and prepare a place, I'm going to come back and take you so you'll be with me where I am. Boy, that, that really helped me this week because I, I was walking through a Walmart parking lot. Anybody been in a Walmart parking lot lately? I was walking through one, and I caught myself looking on the ground and seeing all the masks on the ground. And for a, a moment, I thought to myself, did I miss the rapture? Why are all these masks on the ground? And then I remember, no, I can't miss the rapture because Jesus has promised he's coming back for me. He's coming back for you if you're in him, if you're in Christ. And so look, look how he says it in verse 2. He calls it my father's house. Now, from a Jewish mindset, the picture here is a dad or a father who has a house and he's adding on rooms to his house for his children and their families. That's the, that's the picture we see when we read it. In my father's house are many rooms. In my father's house are many dwelling places. Meaning there's plenty of room. Meaning we can't overpopulate heaven. It can't happen. Because God has more and more and more room. What a place it'll be. And notice what it says. Jesus says, I go there and prepare a place. Well, how does he prepare the place? The preparation started at a place called Calvary. That's where it began. That Jesus began to prepare a place by dying in your place and in my place. On the tree. Breathing his last. Shedding his blood. Being taken down from the tree. Laid in a tomb. Three days later, gloriously resurrected that we sang about. Wasn't that good? Wasn't worship today good? Singing today? Raised from the dead. Ascended to the Father. Right now, interceding for each one of us in prayer at the Father's side. And one day, coming again. It's, it's part of the preparation. And he's preparing a place. Heaven is a real place. It's not a make-believe place. It's a real place. And I love that, that place. I mean, you think about that place called heaven. Man, what a place. You know, one of my few superpowers, I don't have many superpowers, but one of them is never being able to find the sides on a menu. You have, you have trouble with this? Where are the sides? I can't ever find them. And oftentimes they're right there in front of, front of your face, right? You overlook them. I know I do. I'm so grateful that Jesus doesn't overlook one of us who's in Christ. He doesn't overlook one man or one woman, one boy or one girl who has surrendered their life to Christ. And this is what he says to all of us. Not only is there a place, there's a person. We're not only going to a place, we're going to a person. As he says this, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. Man, that, isn't that good? 
Now, of course, he's going to send the Holy Spirit to indwell us until we get there. But in Christ, we'll never be apart from God. Either he is with us or we will be with him. On earth, he's with us. In heaven, we're with him. Heaven's going to be far better. It's going to be so better. Better than any and all things pumpkin spice. It will be better. We can know that. We can believe that. We can trust that. We can rely on that. We can depend upon that because Jesus is preparing the place. He's not leaving it up to somebody else to prepare it. He's preparing. And here's the last one. Last reason why we can know that every crisis of belief calls for belief in Christ. Jesus spared no expense, none, as the Christ. No expense. He paid it all. He paid it all. John the Baptist said very pointedly and clearly, I am not the Christ. I'm not him. And he pointed people to the Christ. I'm sold on Toyotas. I want a car that is going to last. I'm tired of buying cars that don't last. So I'm sold on Toyotas. I I thought about John the Baptist and what Toyota he would drive. And you know what Toyota he would drive, right? This is a terrible dad joke. Just go ahead and warn you. Forerunner. No. I know it's terrible. But John the Baptist was the forerunner of the Christ. He wasn't the Christ. He knew he wasn't the Christ. He told them, I'm not the Christ. But he pointed them to the Christ. And Jesus spared no expense as the Christ. And here's how Jesus said it about himself. Again, he's either crazy or he's Lord. It's either true or not. And and here's this, again, audacious claim. And the first thing I want to point out about this claim is look at verse number, number four. And you know the way to where I'm going. How many times? How many times? Did Jesus tell these guys what he was going to do? This is where I'm going. And here Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? I don't know about you, but there's been times in my life when I look at the crisis I'm in and I think, Lord, are you even aware of what's happening? Are you paying attention? Lord, I'm trying to be patient with you, Lord. I'm trying to be patient with you, God. I'm trying to be patient. How much longer, Lord? I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. Has it ever occurred to you That although we think we're waiting on God and we're being patient with Him, has it ever occurred to you that actually God is being patient with us? He is long-suffering in His patience toward us, desiring no one to perish but that all come to repentance. And here's how that happens. Jesus tells us, He says, I am the way. I love that I am statements in the Gospel of John. There's about eight of them, and I love these I am statements. Uh, For one thing, it's singular. He doesn't say we are, does he? He says I am, singular. And it's always in the present tense. It's forever in the present tense. Jesus is not saying, I hope to be one day. I aspire to be. I'm planning on being. I hope to be. I'm trying to be. I look to be. I used to be. I vow to be. No, he says, I am. I am the way. 
I am the road. I am the journey. I'm not going to point you to the road. I am the road. I'm not going to point you to the way. I am the way. I'm not a way among other ways. I'm the way. The only way. He makes it very clear. He's not saying I'm a better way. I'm another way. I'm the best way. You know, when you travel and you pull up GPS, it'll give you the fastest route, right? There may be some kind of trouble up ahead, and it says you're still on the fastest route, right? Jesus isn't saying I'm the fastest way or the scenic way. I'm, I'm the longest way or the shortest way. He says I am the way. There's no other way. I'm the way. There's a lot of roads that lead elsewhere. There's only one road that leads home. Jesus, period. He's the way. He says, I am the way. So, but how can we believe that? I mean, okay, you tell me that, but how can I be sure about that? How can I trust that? He doesn't stop it, I'm the way. What does he say secondly? I'm the what? I'm the, I'm the truth. In other words, you can be sure. Jesus is telling us the truth. He says, I am the truth. Truth speaks of something that's not hidden. It speaks of reality. It speaks of being sure, a complete reliability of Jesus and all that he said and all that he did. That's what it means when he says, I'm the truth. Jesus doesn't say, well, I'm the truth unless you don't believe it. It doesn't matter if you believe it or not. It doesn't matter if you follow him or not. It doesn't matter if you accept it or not. It doesn't matter if you like it or not. It doesn't matter if you're loyal to him or not. He is still the truth. One said it like this. Jesus does not just become the truth to those who believe in him. Jesus will be the truth if the entire human race rejected him. He is the truth. He is the way. We, you, you can be saved. You can be sure about it because he's the truth. And you can be satisfied in it because he's the life. He is the life. He's not a lifestyle. A lifestyle is what I prefer. It's about me. Life is about what you need, not what you want. Jesus is not a fad. He's not the latest and greatest. He's not a lifestyle here one minute, gone the next. He is life without end, forevermore. He's the life, the only one who can satisfy. And then to reiterate this, he says it again because we need to hear it again. And he says it in a different way. No one comes to the Father except through me. So, man, that's really narrow-minded. That's really intolerant. That's really exclusive. It is exclusive. It's not exclusive in who it lets in. It's exclusive in how you get in. There's only one way to get in. But anyone and everyone who goes that way will get in. Yeah, it's exclusive because there's one way. It's inclusive in that whosoever believes. Anyone who comes through the Son will get to the Father. 100% of the people who trust in Jesus alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, they're going to get to the Father. 0% of those who do not believe in Jesus by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, will get to heaven. Zero. None of them. There's only one way. And that's not hateful to tell somebody. It's not hate speech to tell somebody there's only one way. It's hateful to not tell them there's only one way. The gospel is inclusive and in that whosoever will believe will be saved. It's exclusive and that Jesus 
is whom you have to believe in. It's conclusive in that no one comes to the Father except through Him. See, there's, there's many ways to be wrong. There's one way to be right. Jesus. He's the only way. We don't need to sit around and be bitter and complain and moan and groan that, hey, there's only one way. We need to stand up, shout, celebrate, praise God that there's any way at all for us wretched, wicked, rebellious sinners to be brought back to God. Praise God for His Son, Jesus. Think about it like this. Let's say you go visit a car lot, and this lot has 5,000 cars on it. Only one of the cars has an engine in it. It would take me 4,999 times to find that car. That's just how it would go. So let's say 5,000 cars, only one of them has an engine. And let's say there's one person who knew which car had the engine in it. And that person, he or she, pointed that car out to you. Led you to that car. Opened the door and put you in the seat of that car. And cranked the engine of that car. And it's running. It's running. You would be labeled a fool. You would be committed to an insane asylum. If you then looked at that person and said to them, you are too narrow-minded. You're too intolerant. I'd rather try a few other cars before I take your word on this car being the one with, and the engine's running. I have my own ideas of which one has an engine. You'd be labeled a fool or insane. And yet, here's what Jesus says. He says, I am the door. Anyone who enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Jesus says, or the Bible says, there's one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. One, not two, one. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that is given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus alone. Every crisis of belief, every one of them, I don't care how small you think it is or how big it might be, every crisis of belief calls for belief in Christ. And by the way, belief here, when you read the word believe, look at verse 1. See that word believe? Somebody say believe. That word is not a one-time tip of the hat, mental, okay, I believe that Jesus is God. That's not what this is referring to. John uses this word over 56 times. You find it in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him. That word believe means it's in the present tense, which means it's a continuous, ongoing trust, an ongoing dependence, an ongoing reliance in Christ. Never stopping. Ongoing. Every affliction that we face, it calls for belief in the one who heals every disease and affliction. And by the way, Jesus heals them all. It's just a matter of when and where he does it. Does he do it here? Sometimes, but in heaven he does it all the time. There's no affliction in heaven. There's no sin in heaven. Every burden that you carry calls for belief in the one, the Christ, who said my yoke is easy, my burden is 
light. Every care that you're, bear, you're, you're, you're carrying calls for your belief in the Christ who, whom Peter said, cast your cares upon him for he cares for you. Every doubt you have in your mind calls for belief in the Christ who looked at doubting Thomas and stopped doubting and believed. Every flood of emotion that races over you calls for belief in the Christ whose ark was in motion over the flood. Every guilt that grips your life calls for belief in the one whom Pilate said, I find no guilt in him. Every I can't even in your life, every time you think, I can't even, I can't even, I can't even, it calls for belief in the Christ who said, I am the life. Every job loss calls for belief in the Christ who, who restored all of Job's loss. Every loved one you've lost in death calls for belief in the Christ who loved us to death. Every piece of bad news calls for belief in the Christ who came preaching the good news. Every point of no return that you arrive at calls for your belief in the one who is poised, the Christ who is poised to return. Every empty truth, and we hear them every day, Lie after lie after lie. Every empty truth calls for your belief in the Christ who came full of grace and truth. Every unknown in your life calls for belief in the Christ who has made himself known. 